If you could turn to uh, take God's, your copy of God's perfect and holy word and open up to the Gospel of John, please. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're looking in the next few weeks at um, some texts relating to Advent um, and see what that, uh, that means for us. And we're going to be looking specifically at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Um, you'll notice that as we read through it together here in just a couple of minutes or a few seconds here, as long as it takes me to talk, um, that there are going to be some verses that have actually taken out in order to keep sort of the flow of John's thought here because John does have some parenthetical statements within these first 18 verses. And so we will read together on, on the screen which, uh, um, which ones that we have for today. And so... Um, as we have in the last number of weeks, uh, we'll read the scripture together. We're reading out of the English Standard Version, so we have it up there. And let's begin. In the beginning was the Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what, uh, what great truths are written in these words. Um, Lord, would you give us grace as we hear your word preached? Would you give us grace to have our hearts opened, to have our eyes opened, our ears opened, so that we can live for your truth and for your glory? Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. You know, I, I don't remember how old I was but I remember being really young, maybe four. Uh, it was near Christmas, and uh, instead of waiting for the surprise of the big day, uh, curiosity got the best of me, and I raided the house to see where my parents had stashed all of my brother and I's uh, gifts. I had to do it in stealth, of course, because... Uh, there's no way that I could let my parents know exactly what I was up to. Um, and after searching every possible place in the house, I finally landed on the jackpot in my dad's closet. And the interesting thing is, is that I don't, I don't even remember what the item was. I just remember it being 
really big. I think that it was Skeletor's Castle from He-Man, I think. Um, if any of you grew up in the 80s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I don't really remember, and that's not really the point, to remember what it, what it was. What matters is that from that moment on until Christmas, I was trusting that I was going to get this really large gift. And the big day came, and, and we opened up all of our gifts as a, as a family. And I remember getting through all of my gifts. And, and I remember my brother getting through all of, all of his gifts. And then I remember looking around at the end and saying, but where's the big one? Where's the big one? I don't see it here. And then in the loving voice of my mother, she responds, what are you talking about? What big one are you referring to? Well, uh, there, there were no more presents left, and this coveted item that I had spotted in my dad's closet was nowhere to be found. Um, and it was with those words that my mother ruined Christmas for me for about three minutes until I realized that she probably caught on to my snooping and returned the item that I was expecting. Looking back now, however, I, I, I realized that the deep disappointment that I had received that day was, was not because of the uh, quote-unquote punishment for peeking at presence. It was that I had my hopes set for something that was going to happen. Uh, I had trusted that this amazing toy was going to be mine. And when it wasn't, that hope came dashing down faster than Santa goes down a chimney. Many of us know what it's like to be deeply disappointed by someone or something that we trusted in. The loss of that trust, the, the dashing of the expectation, it, it, can, be, it can be crushing. Uh, it can be embarrassing. Or it can be unbearable. But when we approach Scripture, we see that in the Old Testament, God promised us a really big present and God, through his prophets, even allowed us a peek at what that gift would be and the specific details about it. And then he comes. He doesn't come in a, in a big package. He doesn't, he doesn't come in fancy wrapping paper with bows and ribbons. He doesn't come in shouts of fanfare or, or pomp and circumstance, but he comes among the braying of livestock. God gave us this amazing gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas time, and sadly, many people today, as there were then, look upon this gift of Jesus and they say, Where's the big one? Where is he? Because this, this doesn't look anything like it. They missed their cue. They, 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 they didn't read the fine print. They, they set their expectations, not necessarily higher, but they just misplaced their expectations into something else. 
But in our text today, we see that those who recognize Jesus for who he is get the right to become children of God. This morning we look at a a familiar passage to many of us, but maybe from a different angle. We look at at John chapter 1 in the same way that a child who finally gets to open the gift that he has been peeking at for years. And through it, we find that God not only exceeds our expectations, but that he never lets us down in our trust of him. So let's look at three ways in which we can trust Jesus today and throughout the year because of his incarnation. And the first is that we can trust Jesus because he is truly God. Trust Jesus because he is truly God. A basic description of any of the Gospels in our New Testament, the four of them, are that they are biographies of Jesus. And they all put a different little spin on their view of Jesus. In, uh, in Luke, um, well actually let me start with Mark. Mark starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So when Jesus does his public ministry at his early 30s or so, Mark picks it up right then. Luke goes a bit further back and he starts by recounting the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew takes it even further beyond that and looks at Jesus' kingly line and sees how he is in the right position to be the king of Israel from long, long ago. But in John's gospel, he goes even further back than Matthew does. He doesn't point us to the details of Jesus' birth. He doesn't point us to the details of of Jesus' kingly line. Rather, he goes all the way back to the beginning. At least what, what, what we would consider the beginning. But he takes us even back further than that. He brings us back to the, the, to the time, paradoxically the time, when there was no time. Before there was any space, before there was any matter, before there was anything, John takes us there and says that before all this existed, there was God. And he does not do this to prove that Jesus was the king of all kings. He doesn't do it to prove that he was the prophet to come. He doesn't even do it to prove that uh, he was the high priest. He does it to prove that Jesus is indeed God. Not someone who was created and became God, but someone who was God from all eternity. Look with me in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, when, when John talks about the, the, the uh, beginning here, it, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God. It reminds us that before anything existed, God was there. But John doesn't say, in the beginning, God. Rather, John, he fleshes out those details a bit. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And by using that term, the Word, John creatively connects to his two audiences that would be reading his gospel, the Jews and the Greeks. 
to the Jews that he was writing to, they would have understood exactly what he was saying because the Jews understood God's uh, word to be his powerful, creative work. It was his word that would make things happen. It was through his word that the universe was created. It was through his word that miracles happened. It was through his word in the book of Ezekiel that dry bones were put together and flesh came on them to make a living uh, living flesh again. It is by God's word that governments rise and fall. So to the Jew, they would recognize God's word as this powerful agent by which he gets things done. Now to the Greek, they would understand John's mindset because they believed that what was called the word, literally in Greek it's logos, was a ra- the rational principle by which everything exists. To them, there was no other God except the Word. And that everything that exists sprung forth from this Word. In fact, Greek philosopher Philo taught that the Word is the ideal man, the primal man, from whom all humans have their source. And here, John is taking those two ideas, throwing them into a box, wrapping them up nicely as a gift to show the identity of this word that he was in the beginning. But it doesn't yet reconcile how does this fit into Genesis chapter 1. So look with me further in the verse, in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So now we're, we're getting a little bit clearer here. Uh, whatever this Word truly is, it was at least in the beginning with God. But it raises questions on whether or not this Word was the first created thing before anything else. But John goes on. He says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so now John gives us some crucial information here that the Word was both individualistic, yet he was also part of a collective. He was truly God in himself, yet John is helping us understand something else about God. That though God is one, he has revealed himself in three different ways simultaneously. And I wish that we had time to do a a survey of, of how the Bible presents that, but we just don't. And so when we connect Genesis 1 account with what John is writing here, we see how both... God the Father and God the Son are working together in their distinctions, yet as one. Keep your finger or take your your, your Bible ribbon and and keep it in John chapter 1. And I want to ask you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment. Uh, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It's not hard to find. Uh, So you just close your Bible up, open it up a couple pages to see Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it won't be on the screen because I'm going to take you on a little journey here. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've established that. Now skip to verse 3. And God said, 
let there be light. And there was light. Now skip to verse 7. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters and that were above the expanse. And so it was. Skip now to verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let their dry land appear. And it was so. Look in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed is each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Okay, so I'm going to stop here for a second and because hopefully you get the point. In Genesis 1, what is the means by which God is creating everything? It is through his, his word. It is by speaking. When you speak, what do you use? You use words. So in Genesis 1, we see God creating all things by the power of his word. Now let's flip back to John, to John chapter 1. Look with me in verse 3. Talking about the word. All things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So do you see now that when God created all things through the power of his word, it wasn't just the efficacy of the syllables and the sounds that he was making. Rather, he was creating everything through the power of Jesus Christ. How do I get that? We're talking about Jesus here. Well, for one, John will call the word Jesus later in the section, but Colossians 1 testifies to this truth specifically regarding Jesus. Look at me in Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For by, and, and that Greek word uh, by also means uh, in, it also means with, him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Translation, Jesus Christ is truly God who was with the Father throughout all eternity and was the vehicle by which everything exists, including you and me. And allow me to take that a little bit further, friends. If it's true that Jesus Christ is the powerful agent by which all things are created and that there was nothing that was made that didn't first go through him, then we must also pause and take a humbling breath to remember that this applies to our salvation as well. Any hope of fixing our messed up lives or our messed up world is only through the creative and redemptive power of Jesus Christ. It is through him, and it is through him alone that he takes our broken lives and our dead spirits and he recreates them and makes new life. And so the Christmas season is somewhat two-faced. 
on one side, we see the absolute beauty of the season. We see the lights. We see the decorations. We go to the parties. We get the Christmas cards. We send them out. We Christmas cookies, right? These are the, the, beauty, uh, the beautiful things of the season. But on the flip side, because it's a beautiful season, it also tends to enhance the other issues that we have in our lives. Anxiety in this time of year seems to be heightened. There's family issues. Many of us grieve during the holidays because it's a lot harder to spend the holidays without those who have passed away. But when we cut through all the glam and all the glitter and all the presents and all the parties and all that and we strip away everything that our culture has put into Christmas and everything that we have put into Christmas, we are confronted with a baby in a manger who, though he was born, was from eternity past before any of this, what we're doing today, existed. And because he is truly God, we can trust him. We can trust that because all things were created through him, that he can recreate your story. If you haven't yet, or maybe you have and you need to again, place your full trust, your full confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was truly God. But on top of that, we also need to trust Jesus because he was not just fully God, but he was fully man as well. Trust Jesus because he is truly man. In verse 4 of our text, John, John kind of switches his language here concerning Jesus away from the concept of being the word into the concept of Jesus being light. The contrast between light and dark is something that John's going to continually revisit in his gospel. Now think of how much physical light helps us throughout our day. Regardless of how well you know your house and regardless of how familiar you think you are where the furniture is placed, when there is absolute darkness, there is still a high probability that you will stub a toe, hurt your knee, or walk around looking ridiculous trying to find something in order to make your way around. Unless there is absolutely nothing in that room, you're not going to get through a dark room smoothly, quickly, or without any problems. That is an illustration of what life is like without Jesus Christ in your life. You might think that you understand life. You might go through life pretending that everything is great. Coming to church, going about life, looking nice and pretending that everything is good on the surface. But when you get quiet with yourself, 
you realize that you're living like you're walking through a dark room. You're spiritually stubbing your toe or searching for something to hold on to for security. Trusting in Jesus gives you that spiritual illumination. He helps you navigate through life so we don't go around cautiously feeling our way. His light gives us freedom to walk without the burden of bondage to to sin and other maladies that will not only get us down but will also lead us into hell. And as good as light is, light also can provide a bit of frustration. Imagine with me that you spend all morning dusting the wood surfaces in your house. You do your mantle, you do your coffee table, you do the end, you do your bed ends. And then you search the house looking to see how well you dusted. And you see all those things, oh, it looks so good, it used end dust, it can't even see anything. And you say, all right, now is the time to open up the curtains and let the light in. And so you take the curtains and you open them up wide and what do you see? A cloud of dust everywhere that you could not see unless that light shined, shone? What's the past tense of that? Uh, Shined on that dust. A minute ago it looked clean and brilliant. But when the light shines in, it exposes all of those flaws that you either didn't know that were there or you chose to deny it. Now look with me in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now the world here is the Greek word cosmos. Every so often in the New Testament, it's referring to the physical world. By and large it is not referring to the physical world. It is referring to the sinful patterns of the world. It is referring to all those things that are contrary to God, His will, and His ways. In other words, John is saying here that when Jesus was born as a man, when uh, the true God took on human form, which we'll get to next week, when the light came into this world, Jesus was entering hostile territory. And when he did that, John tells us that two results happened. The first was that the people, the very people that he came for, saw him in the same way that we see the dust in the sunlight in our living rooms. He exposes our faults. He exposes those things about us that we don't like to face and that we definitely don't want other people knowing about. And so we close the curtain and we hate Jesus for exposing those things about us. Look in verse 10. He was in the world and... The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so we see from the text here, or, or perhaps in your, in your own experience, that when the light of Jesus Christ came into the world and to us personally, we may be 
morally repulsed by him. And we want nothing to do with that. And Jesus would go on to say in in the third chapter of John, verses 19 through 20, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So many times in our lives, we don't want to open the curtain because we don't want to see how bad it truly is. But there's a second way here, another result of the light coming into the world, and it's sort of an unexpected one, that when Jesus came into the world, the result was adoption. The result was adoption. Look with me in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when Jesus came as a man, he experienced great and tragic rejection. And he still does by and large. However, when he came as a man, he was also the ultimate spiritual social worker. He was working on behalf of those who are lost and abandoned and spiritual orphans. Ones who, when they saw the the cloud of dust in their lives, didn't close the curtain in rejection and repulsion, but rather faced it and cried out for help. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in crying out to them, They received him as the only purifier by which their lives could be free from the ugliness that was exposed by the light. And when they did this, the man Jesus Christ, the text tells us, gave them the right to become sons and daughters. So you see a lot of people talk these days about everyone being a child of God. That's wrong. It's not true. Jesus here says that it's only those who open the curtain and are okay with the dust in there because they know that Jesus can purify them that are sons and daughters of the living God. And Jesus came as truly God, to be our sufficient hope to trust in. If he was just a man and not God, he wouldn't be worthy of our trust because he wouldn't be any different than you and me. And if he was just truly God, he couldn't relate to us. He wouldn't understand what it's like to be rejected. He wouldn't understand what life is like. He wouldn't have understood suffering And we couldn't be adopted. So we need to trust Jesus because he's truly God and he's truly man. And finally, we need to trust Jesus because he came among us. 
Verses 14 through 18 show us what theologians call the hypostatic union. It's a big word. But what it essentially means is that it's the perfect union between uh, Christ being both truly God and truly man. Look with me in verse 14. And the word, who we just said was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is a very interesting term that the Jews would have understood very well because the literal translation of that word dwelt means tabernacled. And if you go back in history to, to uh, the Jews and their wilderness wanderings until the time of the temple being built, they would have had this tabernacle that they carried with them. It was sort of this box, which is where God's presence dwelled with them. So everywhere they went, everything they did, it was important to have the tabernacle with them because that is how God dwelt with them. It would end up going into the temple of God and for years until the temple was destroyed, the temple was the place where the Jews saw God's presence with them because the tabernacle was in the temple. But notice what John is saying here. God was not content to dwell with his people in a temporary box, but rather he would come to tabernacle with his people. And by doing that, it is through the vehicle of humanity that God could most connect us with him. It's the way that he could identify with our sorrows, identify with our suffering, identify with our misery, as well as our joys and celebration. It was through the vehicle of humanity that God would be able to give us what verse 16 tells us, Grace upon grace. It was through the vehicle of humanity that he would allow his people to see the unseeable God. Look in verse 18. No one has ever seen God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, Scripture tells us that God is spirit, that he has no body. And throughout all the Old Testament, whenever someone would encounter the holiness of God, they would either have to be shielded from it or they were faced with absolute terror that they were going to die. No one is allowed to see the fullness of the glory of God. But yet... That is the goal of every Christian. And in Jesus Christ, God allows us to see what we should not be able to see. God makes himself visible, known, seeable in Christ Jesus. And so we can trust in him because he was fully God Truly God, that's a better term to use. He was truly God and truly man, and he walked among us. So when we're confronted with John chapter 1, we're face to face with the idea of God's hypostatic union. And when we see John chapter 1, none of us can say, where's the big one? Where is it coming? When is it coming? 
Because at Christmas, God gave us the greatest gift that anyone could receive. He gave us himself. Truly God and truly man. So will you today, in light of that, see Christmas anew? Will you today entrust your life in his sovereign care? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth that you sent your Son from eternity past to dwell among us, helpless, dirty, messed up people. You made him like us in every way. We thank you for that, God. And I want to ask, Father, that from this moment, if we haven't, or maybe we need to again, trust Jesus with every aspect of our lives because he was truly God, truly man, and he walked among us. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Well, it is the first Sunday of the month. And when it is the first Sunday of the month as a church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what a way to show the reality of Jesus' humanity by seeing that he lived and ate among us. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, he had a meal with his friends and, and let them know that he was going to be leaving them soon. But he wanted to share this meal with them in order to give them a symbolic remembrance from that point on to remember him by. And so we as a church do that today. We have crackers and we have juice to symbolize a body that was broken for us, blood that was spilled out for us. This is not closed communion, which means if you're only a member, you can take of this. If you have put your full trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, doesn't matter if you're a Lutheran, doesn't matter if you're a Presbyterian, doesn't matter if you're an independent Baptist, doesn't matter. We're here to share in this uh, table together. Now, we, we have changed uh, something a, a, a bit uh, this week and moving on. There, there are some uh, in our midst that, uh, that require a, a gluten-free diet. So if uh, that is you, I want to let you know that we do have gluten-free uh, wafers um, now, and, and we will as we, as we go on from here. So don't be afraid, afraid to uh, take of that as we go forward. I'm going to ask the ushers that, um, that are, not the ushers, the servers to come forward um, as we celebrate uh, this time together. And as uh, before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he took the bread and he gave thanks. And as they make their way forward, allow me to, to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this visible reminder of what you have done for us. Lord, we, we know that, that this, uh, these crackers and this juice, there's nothing magical. This does not change into your literal body and your literal blood. But you told us to do this as a remembrance of you. So, Father, help us um, as we take of this together to remember who you are, what you've done for us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name, in his name that I ask this. Amen. And before I hand this out, um, we do take of both elements together. 
The crackers will go out first. We'll hold on to those, and then the juice will go out, and then from there we'll take of those uh, together. So please hold until we all uh, take together.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul um, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Jesus, indeed, you did pay it all, and all, and we owe everything to you. And so, Father, would you help us to leave this place uh, more filled in him, more joyful in him, the God-man that became flesh. Would he be glorified in our lives as we go into the mission field of our community to love and to serve him? And it's in his great name that I ask this. Amen. Thank you. I'll have a blessed afternoon.